Sydney Environment Institute presents the Environmental Justice 2017 Conference Keynote Conversation 2, EJ Looking Forward, with Chair Gordon Walker and speakers Julian Adjiman, Alice Ma and David Pello. Good morning, everybody. It's fantastic to be here at this conference. I always wanted to be at the 1997 event. I read about it, I heard people talking about it, and it was always one of those things that would have been a fantastic thing to experience at that point in my career. So it's great to be here 20 years on and to be part of what looks like it's going to be an equally invigorating and exciting event. So um, having looked back, we're now going to look forward. And when, I, when we do either of those things, we also talk about the present day, but particularly we want to encourage our discussion to be thinking sort of perhaps pessimistically, perhaps optimistically about where we might be going and the types of research we need to do, the types of activism we would like to see, and the type of substance to future environmental justice that we think is on the horizon. And we have three fantastic panelists to help us in that process, which I will introduce in turn. And we're going to have a similar format, so we'll have 10 minutes contribution from each, each person. I've encouraged them to keep it short and pithy and tight. I've also encouraged them to disagree with each other if they feel so inclined. And I like the sofa bit, so I think we want to, we want to have more sofa in this session. So um, they're going to be able to lounge on the sofa, but I'm also going to do what I can to bring, bring you as members of the audience in. So we have a conversation which is both on the sofa and, and in the room more, more generally. So, first of all, we have uh, Professor Julian Adjiman, who is Professor of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at Tufts University, just outside of Boston. Julian actually started his academic career in the UK. I first met him when he was over um, that side of the Atlantic. He then moved across the Atlantic into the United States, and he's developed a fantastic and extensive scholarship on the intersections between environmental justice and sustainability, particularly captured in the notion of just sustainability, which um, he's taken forward and other people are now working with in very interesting ways, but also work on sharing and the sharing cities in the context of just sustainability. So, Julian, do you want to come up and give us your thoughts on the future? I'm really shocked that my academic colleagues haven't been selling books. Um, so the psychologists tell me if I leave these books up here for 45 seconds, 20% of you will buy either one or both of them. So I'm really uh, I'm pleased about that. The reason for putting the books up here is, is several fold. Firstly, the one on the left is from 2003, and then the one on the right is from 2015. It represents 15 years of thinking about this concept of just sustainabilities. But before I actually start, I actually want to um, pay uh, my tribute to the second editor in the book, uh, Professor Bob Bullard. Bob and I started corresponding before the internet. Yeah, and you millennials, there was a period before the internet. We actually wrote letters to each other in the 80s um, when I was in Britain trying to get this idea of environmental justice into 
Margaret Thatcher's Britain. I mean, Thatcher didn't care about green issues. And to think there were black people talking about green issues, uh, I mean, we were... <laughs> you probably thought I was crazy as well, Bob. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. So um, what I want to try and do, and in 10 minutes, you know, we cannot be comprehensive. So I want to give you just three ideas, I think, about this idea of just sustainabilities. But one of the, one of the things I just want to uh, make very clear is this is not a competitor concept to environmental justice. I'm a professor of urban policy and planning. I noticed from the early 2000s in the United States that the concept of environmental justice was a very powerful concept as an activist agenda, but they were pushing it out at the state and other levels. They were pushing it out of the policy agenda. The new policy agenda then was sustainability. So I was thinking, and, and in this book we were trying to think about, how do we get the justice of environmental justice into sustainability? And so we got this concept called just sustainabilities. And I'm pleased to say I think, I, judging by the, the number of uh, requests I get from young PhD uh, researchers and from policymakers, this is a concept that uh, I think it has got some traction. So I want to speak a little bit about three areas that I see uh, of growing importance. Now, being in urban planning, one of the key things that's really impressed me over several years is this definition by Patsy Healy, Emeritus Professor at Newcastle, that urban planning is managing our coexistence in shared space. Two fabulous concepts, coexistence and shared space. Coexistence and shared space. This isn't coexistence and shared space with everybody who looks alike. We live in increasingly different and diverse cities. We live in intercultural cities. We now have the concept of hyperdiversity. How do we plan for, how do we move forward in cities of difference? How do we coexist in shared space? Because this is the nub of just sustainabilities and environmental justice. Whether you take the space as being the local, whatever that means, or the global, we coexist in this shared space. This is the challenge of our times. And so I think, and I don't usually advertise other people's books, but I'm going to advertise this one. Um, I think there's three challenges then. Number one is recognizing, and we've mentioned it, and to us in this room, we are absolutely convinced and always have been that human equality and environmental quality are inseparable. But there are still people who don't believe this. We are constantly under challenge to prove, to prove, to prove. I think this book does a really good job of making the link between environmental quality and human equality. So basically, the spirit level. Um, 40 years of data across the world shows one big thing. It's not poverty, it's inequality that is corrosive in society. Poverty is bad, but inequality is really bad. And the bigger the gap between rich and poor, the more problems you have in your society. Absolute correlation. But cut to the chase here, in terms of... Oh, well, actually, no, let me just go back to that. What was really interesting about the research, they showed that basically the gap between rich and poor, the bigger the gap, uh, obviously the more social problems, from everything from teen pregnancy to drug taking to incarceration rates on every level. But also they found a correlation between increasing inequality and advertising revenues. Advertisers love inequality. Inequality sells products like nothing. 
So the states with the biggest inequality, the countries with the biggest inequality, massive advertising revenues. But the book makes the point that inequality heightens competitive consumption, keeping up with the Joneses. The more inequality, the more people spend, buy on credit, whatever. And inequality heightens competitive consumption. Consumption heightens our carbon footprint. So this book makes the case that uh, inequality is what drives climate change. Now, a lot of the evidence that I see says inequality will worsen climate change, but I don't see much saying inequality is the cause of climate change. So inequality and climate change, I think, are inextricably linked. And if we really want to understand, I think, sustainability and justice, we need to look at this nexus between inequality as a driver and a deepener uh, of, of climate change and inequality uh, together. So I think then recognition of this idea of human equality and environmental equality to us uh, on the political left, to us as environmental justice activists and scholars, it's a case well made, but still a lot of people are challenging that. And I think one of the issues going forward is to keep that inequality and uh, environmental equality and human inequality issue alive. I'm always saying to my urban planning students, ask not what is probable, but what is possible. Um, and I think that's a case, again, for what we want uh, in the next generation of environmental justice scholarship. We need to move to look about what is possible. We will never get out of this tired old paradigm if we keep doing what we've already done. And here you have two pictures. This is Times Square. Uh, and Broadway in New York. Who would ever thought we would see pictures like this? Who would ever thought, you know, a woman would be sitting there in the red, uh, uh, red clothing, looking as if it's the most normal thing to be doing, sitting on a deck chair in the middle of Times Square? The young woman blissed out in the moment of transgression. But let's go behind this picture. Mayor Bloomberg hired an amazing transportation commissioner, Janet Sadiq Khan, who hired Jan Gale, the architect of the Copenhagen miracle. And together they enlisted the transportation justice, the, the, the environmental justice, the other groups in New York who wanted to see streets for people. And this is the result, 10 years on. Now, Mayor Bloomberg did all kinds of things that I don't agree with. But one thing that he did do was really give people an idea of what is possible in terms of the streets of New York. And this is, I think, certainly in terms of urban planning, where I'd like to see uh, some of the activism and some of the, the future possibilities for uh, environmental justice uh, and just sustainability uh, research and uh, activism. And third, I think, this idea of questioning. We have so many concepts in sustainability. Two, one is local and one is less. You know, local is a big thing in sustainability and I'm going to talk about that. And the idea of less is more. I remember being at a conference in 1988 when we set up the Black Environment Network in Britain and Jonathan Porritt, who was the founder, well, the director of uh, Friends of the Earth in the UK at the time, said to uh, the, the other keynote speaker, the Reverend Barry Thorley, who was a, a black minister in, in uh, one of the churches in the UK, uh, he said, um, you know, well, we've got to start consuming less. And Barry Thorley turned around and said to Jonathan Porritt, Jonathan, 
my people can't consume any less. Don't tell me to consume less. When we've consumed what you've consumed, then maybe we'll think about that. But I want another 100 years of consumption before I start consuming less. So there's this, this, notion, of, this notion of less, I think, is very, very um, damaging. But I just wanted to spend the last minute talking about the word local. What are local foods in an intercultural society? Here, oh my God, sorry about this. Technology is not too good here in Sydney, is it? Usually we have things right in front of us. Um, <laughs> this is George and Julia Bowling from the uh, Bowling Farm in Maryland. They're tobacco farmers, but not now. Now, the signpost to their farm is that, African produce. There's 140,000 Africans in the DC area. They want to eat African food that is grown locally. George and Julia Bowling are one of a group of farmers starting to provide that food. Great idea. What is local food in an intercultural society? The Filipinos in San Diego believe that their food is local because they grow it and they farm it. The farmers in the greater Vancouver region, 15, sorry, 20% of whom are Chinese Canadians, believe their food is local food. Is local geographic or is it a cultural? Can we have a translocalism? And I think this is a challenge. We need uh, to keep challenging some of the dogma, local, less. All of these ideas are up for grabs, and I think we really need to look at them. And if we are going to have a local foods movement, let's make that local foods movement think more translocally. And I'm really frightened that Duncan's going to do me damage, so I'm going to stop right there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Julian. I, I've never had such an effect from just standing up before. It was, that, was, that was awesome. Okay, so next up, I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Alice Ma, from, who is a research fellow in sociology at the University of Warwick. Um, she's had a, a, an academic career that's moved her from Canada to the UK and out to Germany and then back to the UK again. And in the UK, she's leading a fantastic five-year project funded by the European Research Commission called Expertise, Environmental Justice in the Petrochemical Industry. And uh, she's been holding some great events and putting together a newsletter, which I thoroughly recommend people subscribe to. She has a great team of people working with her. So over to you, Alice. Thank you very much uh, for the uh, invitation, David, and for the introduction. Uh, it's a great privilege and honor to be here in, in such fantastic company. Uh, so I'm going to be talking uh, about the challenge of global environmental injustice. So as, as uh, many of you are, are aware, uh, one of the main aims of environmental justice has been uh, to make injustices, vis in, uh, injustices visible. Uh, and so uh, much of this effort has been uh, focused on activism, on conflict, on protests, uh, on, on these struggles uh, for justice. But the main aim has been 
about tackling injustice. And I think uh, it's imp important uh, to think about the context of injustice as not just bracketed within a, an ideal aim of, of justice, uh, but more about uh, also thinking about con contexts where injustice is not so visible. So where there's no activist movements, uh, where uh, there's no media attention, uh, where uh, there are maybe, maybe complaints or felt injustices. And, and as Rob Nixon has pointed out in, in his work on slow violence, this is actually the case of the majority of contexts of environmental injustice around the world. Uh, so the project that I've uh, been working on is looking at the global petrochemical industry uh, around the world uh, with uh, contexts in China, in the United States, uh, in Europe, and more broadly, uh, uh, very much uh, following that in environmental justice framework in the sense of uh, looking at inequality and the disproportionate burden on poor and more marginalized people. Um, but our methodology has been to focus on contexts of injustice uh, where there are more kind of quiet cases. So I'm going to start uh, by talking a little bit of some of, about some of the research that we've been doing in China. Uh, so uh, as, as many of you may be aware, probably one of the most visible um, examples of uh, environmental justice or environmental activism in China has been uh, the growth of the anti-PX or anti-peroxylene uh, protests, uh, these mass protests that have been like half a million people that started in Xiamen in 2007 and have been uh, gathering pace. There's one, ones every, you know, several months. Uh, uh, this image is from Kunming in 2013, although there have been crackdowns on these kinds of protests um, more recently. And so that's where a lot of the kind of popular exposure is uh, to thinking about uh, environmental protest or, or conflict or, or justice concerns. Uh, but many scholars have also pointed out that actually these are mostly urban, middle-class movements um, that are not in the most severe areas of uh, environmental injustice in China, which are actually more in the rural areas. Uh, so in 2010, uh, uh, the journalist uh, Deng Feng uh, uh, and uh, a study by Liu, Li Liao in, in 2010 um, mapped uh, cancer villages in China, so identified areas that had disproportionate levels of uh, cancer and illnesses and made this map that got all over the media uh, and exerted such pressure that actually the Chinese government officially admitted that they have cancer villages in China in 2013 and started to implement pol policies. Um, Anna-Laura Wainwright, the anthropologist, has written uh, a fabulous book uh, called Resigned Activism, in which she talks about the conditions in rural China uh, and uh, these cancer villages, and about how many of these contexts, including in her study, uh, were not cases where there were a lot of activism, but actually places where people had much more everyday um, experiences of living uh, and fighting for um, you know, better environments, but never really escalated to the, the sense of uh, an environmental justice battle. Uh, so some of the research that we've been doing has been focusing on Nanjing. Now, Nanjing is a, is a city that has not experienced any of these massive um, struggles, 
it, it, but it ha hosts the second largest petrochemical base in all of China, and the entire city is dangerously encircled uh, by chemical factories on all sides. It's, it's, um, in a, it's surrounded by valleys. And, and the local government has declared that this is actually quite a dangerous situation to be encircled uh, by all these petrochemical and chemical facilities. And they've tried to locate everything uh, to the north in a chemical park. Uh, and there have been numerous accidents. There have been numerous scientific studies about the health consequences, the risks. Uh, but there haven't been very many protests. Uh, so we've been doing some research, and, and some of these quotes that you see up here are quite typical of the residents in the, and workers in the area. It's sort of like, what can we do? We know that there are health problems. Um, we found that the, you know, there are reports of high levels of cancer. Almost everybody has got nasitis. Um, workers are encouraged to retire early at 40 and go on retreats uh, so that they can get out of the toxic air for a bit. It's, it's very widely recognized. Uh, and the people who suffer the most are actually migrant laborers who live in this sort of liminal zone right next to the factories in a part that's declared illegal for people to live in. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, since they're not sort of citizen residents, then they don't have that status. So these are some of the dimensions of environmental injustice uh, in China. And uh, we've also done some research about indigenous or local language uh, use of environmental justice as a concept in China, which is not at all in the civil society sphere, but is slowly being taken up within the Chinese language um, in some journals and trying to see to what extent the US-based concept applies and, and emphasizing some of the differences like the importance of rural uh, dimensions and east-west divisions. Uh, so uh, this is a, a visit to the Petrochemical Park, um, one of the major companies, Sinopec, welcoming with their sort of corporate social responsibility slogan uh, about how, you know, how green they are, how intelligent they are. Um, and so they do kind of echo many of the uh, global trends in this regard. And you can see this, this uh, person running around, a tr the, the, the lighting isn't great, but there's a, a person running around a, a sports track right um, beside the petrochemical facility. So it is a really proximate neighborhood. And uh, just to bring it more close to home, I mean, I'm Canadian, but live in the UK, and probably the closest uh, facility of this sort is uh, Folly Petrochemical Plant um, in, near Southampton. And this is an area uh, that's also a quiet case, you'd say. Almost nobody's heard of it um, outside of the UK. Um, there have been no environmental justice struggles. When I first visited, uh, talking to local residents, they say it's all fine. You can't find a lot in the media. Uh, but if you dig a little deeper, there were, have been some massive um, industrial accidents around 2007. There's been a long history of covering up controversies, complaints of illnesses. Um, it was declared a pollution zone. And there's sort of a, a fracturing um, social compact between the industry and the um, community, uh, whereby a lot of these issues are, are becoming exposed. But uh, on the ground, there, there's no sort of strong activism. So this is something that I've been, we've been following and, and thinking about in terms of what that means. Uh, and you know, also following patterns of environmental justice and, or injustice in the sense of being uh, relatively poor and, uh, uh, but not ethnic minority communities. Thank you. 
Uh, so I, I think uh, in considering environmental injustice, it's important to think about diversifying our methods. So thinking about new alliances, um, new um, ways, you know, thinking about conversations like in this forum around the globe, about different contexts, about you know, ethnographic methods as well as activist methods. Uh, and uh, joining up conversations, um, but also thinking about, you know, maybe slower ecologies or attentions to things that unfold at a, at a pace that's not so rapid, that's less strikingly visible. Uh, and uh, thinking about different scales, uh, so the global, the local, and the national levels, but also scales in the sense of the scales of justice. I mean, it was mentioned earlier, this idea of values that people hold dear to in terms of justice, but there's no one sense of justice. There's really strong uh, uh, conflicts between um, the environment, people's homes, people's jobs. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like there's one kind of homogenous idea of what environmental justice is. And so I think att attending to those sorts of values is, is, is an important uh, thing to pay attention to. Th thank you. Great. It's be building up to a good sofa session in a minute. But before we get there, we have uh, David Pello, who is Professor of the Dyson Chair and Professor of Environmental Studies and Director of the Global Environmental Justice Project at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So David has written widely and influentially about environmental justice, and in particular environmental justice as a social movement, as well as serving on the boards of directors of many different initiatives, community-based, national, international organizations dedicated to progressing environmental justice in our diversity of contexts and settings. So a wealth of experience to draw on, and 10 minutes on the future, David. Thank you so much for that introduction, and uh, thank you to the conference organizers. It's a real pleasure to be here. And in the spirit of recognizing First and Aboriginal Nations, I bring you greetings from occupied native Chumash lands, also known as Santa Barbara, California. I want to begin with a story about a man named Bryant Arroyo. Bryant Arroyo is a Puerto Rican man who has served time in a prison in the state of Pennsylvania. Bryant Arroyo also is known because he organized more than 900 of his fellow inmates to write letters to the nearby town supervisors in which this prison is based, protesting the planned construction of an $800 million coal gasification plant next door. The coal plant project was defeated, earning Bryant Arroyo a prisoner, the label, the title of jailhouse environmentalist. Now, he is one of just many people in the United States who has fought against environmental injustices under the unimaginable conditions and brutality of the prison industrial complex in my country. And so in this talk, um, thinking about look, looking forward with respect to environmental justice research, I want to discuss conditions facing people like Mr. Arroyo to consider the utility of what has been called a critical environmental justice studies framework. Critical EJ studies is, is an idea that uh, people have put forth going back at least till 2005, uh, intended to address some of the limitations and tensions within the literature. Uh, I recently began a project where I'm bringing this, this perspective to light 
and trying to apply it to the intersection between the prison system and environmental justice concerns. There are many, many ways in which prisons and environmental issues intersect to produce harms to the bodies of inmates, corrections officers, and more than humans in nearby ecosystems and land bases. For example, there are confirmed reports of water contaminated with lead, arsenic, and other pollutants at prisons in more than 20 states in the United States, including the now infamous case of Flint, Michigan, which is in the heart of Genesee County, where we have a jail where many inmates, including pregnant women, were forced to drink contaminated water while the corrections officers, the prison guards, looked on while drinking from filtered water out of bottles. The Northwest Detention Center in the Seattle, Washington area is a privately operated prison designed to house more than 1,500 immigrant detainees. This gets you a sense of the global scale here, people from all over the world, and is adjacent, directly adjacent to a federally designated toxic Superfund site. So a classic EJ studies approach to this topic would likely place a primary emphasis on the degree to which there may be geographic concentrations of prisons and jails next to various communities and neighborhoods, and what remedies must be sought through state-based policy mechanisms. And so I want to build on that with a critical EJ studies approach to just go a bit further. The first pillar of that approach really opens up our scale of analysis to consider how multiple social categories of difference are intertwined in the making of and resistance to environmental injustice. So let's talk about gender, race, and class. The US prison system, as we may know, is comprised by a majority of people of color, and a majority of non-white people and people who are low income. And today, women constitute the single fastest growing group of prisoners. All of these groups face great risk um, as a result of a range of environmental threats being generated both inside and outside of the prisons. So the point is all of these categories matter. Let's talk about species and ecosystems. The impacts of prisons on ecosystems include the ways in which, for example, sewage and other wa water discharges, a whole host of chemical toxins, fossil fuels, air pollution, and hazardous waste generated from within U.S. prison systems affect non-human species and communities in waterways, ambient air, and nearby land bases. One campaign I'm working on is in Letcher County, Kentucky. It's in the southern United States. It's the site of a proposed prison project that will be placed on land that is now cleared because there once were mountains there. Those mountains are no longer there because coal companies engaged in MTR, mountaintop removal, which is a violent, destructive practice of blowing up mountains to extract coal, reducing ecosystems to poisonous rubble and dust. This prison is also to be placed on an area that is low income, raising clear environmental justice concerns about multiple and layered uses uh, over time that will produce harm to ecosystems and human health. The Letcher County prison site is also home to second growth forests. Second growth forests that serve as habitats for 71 different known species, including the endangered species of the Indiana bat and the gray bat, whose lives and fate will be placed in further jeopardy as a result of this proposal. Alice Ma just mentioned uh, the, the importance of multi-scalar 
analysis, temporal scales, is the second uh, pillar of the critical environmental justice framework. And this figures quite strongly in any study of prisons in the United States because you've got to pay attention to history. There's been a lot of talk about our 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution because it's become a key site of discussion for the relationship between imprisonment and oppression because that document, if you read it very closely, makes quite clear that prisons are legally sanctioned sites of enslavement as quote-unquote punishment for a crime. Thus, many scholars, myself included, would argue that abolishing the prison system as we know it today is an important and uncompleted, unfinished bit of business that was begun with the work of slavery abolition centuries ago. So let's continue with scale, talk about micro scale. Petra talked about the emphasis, the importance of the emphasis on the body. Extremely important focus out of feminist scholarship in particular, uh, and feminist environmental justice scholarship as well. Rachel Stein and some of her work, Sherry Moraga and others have argued, uh, as Petra did, when we redefine our bodies as homes, as lands, as environments, then we can more effectively personalize and therefore politicize our, the fact that so many of us have our well-being put at risk from a range of threats. At the micro scale and in the prison system, we find that study after study finds that LGBTQ folk and women face extraordinarily high threats of sexual abuse and violence in that prison system. This is not reformable. It is endemic to prisons. Moreover, consider the, the deliberate use, the deliberate use of toxins on prisoners' bodies. I call these chemical attacks at the micro scale. In many U.S. jails and prisons, according to a recent study by Human Rights Watch, we find that inmates with mental disabilities are frequently subjected to punishment and pain compliance techniques that include the use of chemical sprays to the eyes, to the body, etc. So sexual abuse and chemical attacks, I would argue, are clear examples of environmental injustice in prisons. Let's jump up to the macro scale. We find that many prisons in the U.S. are located on or nearby former military waste dumps. For example, in my home state of California, we have the Victorville Federal Correctional Complex, which was built on what is known as a former weapons storage area. It is now a military Superfund site, means it is recognized by the federal government as contaminated land that poses a significant threat to human and or environmental health. That prison complex is built on the site of the George Air Force Base, where that, that base was once located and where the Department of Defense once buried and stored radioactive nuclear waste, creosote, tetraethyl lead, and munitions. I spoke recently to Eric McDavid, who's a famous environmentalist and former political prisoner who did time at that site. He told me, quote, I served time at that facility in Victorville. It's on a Superfund site. The water is contaminated. It's what you shower with, it's what you eat with, it's what you drink, end quote. So the at-risk bodies of prisoners at Victorville are linked to the legacy of bodies at this Air Force base and the employees and devastated bodies of indigenous peoples and non-humans who have been sacrificed or compromised in the global nuclear arms race and the Cold War. The third pillar of EJ studies signals an opportunity to think and act in ways that question our reliance on state dominance to imagine and achieve environmental injustice. A particularly pronounced way in which prisons and environmental justice come together 
is through the methods that the state often employs to criminalize, control, and incarcerate people who take measures to defend and quote-unquote save the environment and non-humans. In recent years, this has been called the Green Scare, which includes surveillance, infiltration, intimidation, harassment, and imprisonment of activists in radical environmental movements. So this is a particularly tangible and vicious site of state repression. And for me, the fact that activists working to protect and defend vulnerable ecosystems and non-humans have been targeted by the state as eco-terrorists um, and imprisoned suggests to radical movements that embracing and reinforcing state power may be counterproductive to efforts to improve and secure environmental justice. So just to conclude, I would say, Returning to the story of Bryant Arroyo, if he could shut down a coal gasification plant from within the belly of the carceral beast that is the U.S. prison industrial complex, uplifting himself and 900 of his fellow inmates, changing the power dynamics between free and unfree, and securing a rather extraordinary victory from environmental justice from within the context of such violent captivity, then surely you and I and everyone else on this side of the prison walls in the so-called free world must have, we must have far greater power and promise and potential than we ever imagined and can truly go much further toward creating new knowledge and transformative social change for environmental justice. Thank you. <laughs>